Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's great to be with you as always. Appreciate that very much. Do you get the feeling that, uh, and look, you know, you, you, there are precedents in terms of uh, presidents in a modern-day era facing impeachment. Do you, do you think that this whole process now, however it plays out, is really going to handicap the president in terms of the ability to uh, to set and um, and to establish policy? Or do you think because this president really doesn't seem to let anything hinder his uh, his advancement and um, and decision making that this is just another one of those things and he'll be able to lead the same way he has till this point? It's a good question, but we know that, as a general rule, when these kind of um, issues arise, and we see it in Israel also, it inevitably has an impact because it distracts people. They have to spend time with legal advisors. They have to, their mind gets involved in thinking about strategies and ways to deal with it when they're not dealing with some of the more fundamental issues uh, affecting the nation or affecting, um, you know, security, could be economic issues, whatever. So it's hard to believe that it has no impact. But you're right. He has an ability to compartmentalize things, it seems. And and I think that, you know, people have said it about Netanyahu, for instance, about all of the legal cases, and yet it seems to go ahead um, with – all the variety of of challenges that Israel faces, both internationally and nationally, being involved uh, in all of those things. Yeah, I wonder where it's easier. Who mocks the press more, the American president or the Israeli prime minister? Hmm. Uh, Well, in Israel, everything is local. So so it may be, you know, more personal, uh, but there are similarities. Yeah, no question about that. And we move from the turmoil here, if you want to call it turmoil, I guess it depends on everyone's perspective, uh, to the turmoil, if you want to call it that, in Israel. In fact, one might say that compared to last week when we spoke, the situation in Israel is less tumultuous. Uh, we were wondering, unity government, which players, religious parties, Lieberman, etc., would be key in this whole process? Could there be some type of agreement detente between the two major parties led uh, or encouraged by President Rivlin. And now, a week later, essentially, the prime minister, the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is being given the opportunity to form a government. How did we get to this point? Because of the ridiculous system in Israel, the list system, uh, which, if you remember, a couple of years ago, they rectified by having direct election, and then it was nullified, I think, under Sharon, and returned to this system where you vote for the list, and then within the list they choose who heads the party. Uh, I think this time nobody was anxious to be the first. Gantz had the chance, and he said, let Netanyahu take the first strike because it's often the most difficult. And... You know, the party who's doing it often has to make the concessions. Unity governments come about usually when there is an economic or security crisis or when situations like this where you have a political breakdown. 
And there's no formula that anybody has come up with that gives either party a direct route to 61. They can rule as a minority government, but that's so unstable. Uh, a unity government, some argue, is less democratic because you really don't have an opposition. And in this case, the opposition, I think, would be led by the Arab, uh, the joint list, mm. or could be. So the 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 question now is, can they make a government between the two? Will others quit from blue and white, let's say? Uh, will Netanyahu say, I will serve the first year, then the next two years will be for blue and white, and the fourth year comes back to Likud with the knowledge that he won't be there? Uh, will he try, people say, you know, speculate that he'll make a deal for being, uh, you know, for dropping the prosecution? I don't see that right now, and I think Mandelblit is probably not going to let it be politicized, but the people don't want a third election. So it is possible that the prime minister is going to be given an opportunity, which it seems he has already, by the president, the former government, and his first offer might be a unity government? It's not his first desire, but it's there's it no other his... mathematical way wow. of reaching it, unless unless and there are wor- there's there are reports that he talked yesterday with the Labor Party, and together Labor Party religious right bloc with him, um, I think brings him very close to the 61, and, and maybe they want to wean away some of those from blue and white or uh, right. elsewhere. Uh, I, I don't see it right now as uh, immediately. Um, but labor knows that this is a lifeline for them. Their numbers are down to five seats. I mean, this was the the party that ruled Israel for much of its existence. Um, And the, um, but, but I think the country wants to see the broadest possible um, government. Although there's a lot of opposition to the, to religious parties being in, there are people who object to, to Lieberman because he, he brought about this situation I think we're just going to have to wait and see how the, the handling goes. And we can't rule out that they will have to go to a third election. So nobody wants that. On the assumption that Gantz wants to be prime minister, because I think that's a debate in and of itself. But on the assumption he wants to be prime minister, was this a calculated error allowing Netanyahu to try to do this first? No, it was a calculated decision. And they did it because they felt that it would put them in a better position if they have to be the second. If Netanyahu's clock runs out and there's a limited time, then he would be in a much better position to cobble together a coalition, perhaps with a Likud without Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. And then and then, and then, then he'd get that eventuality that so many are hoping for, that Likud would be part of the government and Netanyahu essentially would be out as leader. Right. Um What's the timetable? And and does Yuntif postpone a lot, or it's the same? You, I, I don't. I just don't remember how many weeks or how many days he, they're given to to form this government. Does the holiday season interfere with all that, or essentially it's the same type of timetable? No, the timetable remains the same. They, I think, they have a month and with with an extension possible if the negotiations are really moving. Uh, but the um, but it's not it, it's not limitless. And now the pressure will be on very hard to to reach a decision, not to to let it drag to you know the full right. term of the uh, that he has, uh, because he's got guns waiting. Often when when there's only one and or one major party and the others you know everybody knows it, then 
uh, they can go the full time, and it often has. And because the parties leverage it, they want to get the maximum, so they they always uh, play out the card and they play brinksmanship. And sometimes they find themselves then left out, and sometimes they find themselves benefiting from it. We are heading to the largest cabinet in Israel's history, right? <laughs> because of all the different promises. Well, that's an employment program that they instituted. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about a, you know, if Golda, if Golda saw today's cabinet, she'd never believe it, <laughs> frankly. Well, well, no. Now, this one is a very frugal one because Netanyahu has about six portfolios. <laughs> Good point. So- Good point. Uh, you know, uh, and that's not a healthy situation either. Plenty to distribute. All right, so when we get to the Sukkis area of the calendar, we'll already have a good indication about whether he's going to be able to do it or not. Not sure. Well, yes, an indication of, uh, maybe, but no no surety. Right. And no surety that it'll be concluded because it's only two weeks, right? It's, or, yeah. And, yes, it's got two weeks. Three weeks, so, whatever, yeah. It's not a lot of time given the, the divisions. And remember, there is a history, and people should go and look at it, about national unity governments. Right. You know, we've had, the Israel's had quite a few of them. Uh, and uh, the success, the record is, is sort of mixed. Remember, remember the old joke about, you know, which ended with Truman, you know, proved anybody could be president, you know, in terms of... Right. Uh, I, I'm telling you, the, right, 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 there's that whole thing. Lincoln was there, proved that this person could be a poor person, could be president, et cetera, et cetera. Roosevelt proved that a, a, a disabled person could be president. Right. Truman proved that anybody, anybody could be, be president. president right. And Eisenhower proved you don't need a president. Right. I'm sort of getting that feeling. Now, of course, it's unfair for me to, unfair for me to say this. I don't live in Israel. But I'm sort of getting that feeling that Israel's reached after 71 years the point where they really it's not they're not desperate to have a prime minister at the moment is that is that they, they are they they want a government they 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 know they need it to you know israel faces serious issues in the north in the south iran's actions i mean thank god they've dealt with all of these things uh uh well the the relationship with the us is very important and with europe with others you need a prime minister the fact that he wasn't here for this un uh, General Assembly, when there would have been many opportunities for bilateral meetings, including with some Arab countries, uh, it, it does distract. And and he, you know, he's done a great job on on many fronts. But uh, right now, his focus will be on this, and that that means that he can't uh, put put the full attention into being prime minister. And there are serious issues on Israel's horizon that they they have to address. Iran becoming more aggressive. We see. Mm-hmm. The actions are taking the threats that uh, Rouhani made when he was here and, and Erdogan and others. These are all very serious issues. And in the many, many meetings we had with heads of state, and foreign ministers, and prime ministers, we see a, a, an openness to Israel uh, on the part of some who, who were not before, with the exception of those, those two countries. Uh, but everybody's sensing the real challenges, you know, the the... Uh, growth of these Iraqi, the Iranian-backed militias, and in fact, the calls in Syria for them to get out, and that Muqtar um, uh, uh, Assad, whom everybody remembers is the head of the Shiite militias in Iraq, um, uh, that group, uh, he, he even called now for removing all of the Sunni, the Shiite militias backed by Iran from Iraq back to Syria. And in Syria, we see the calls to get rid of them from there. 
So we have a turmoil, a region in real turmoil, and you need a solid government that can address all of these issues. Yeah, did you mention Egypt as well? Because there, there are protests there that are... Yes, we met with President Sisi, and obviously it's a, a concern when they have the demonstrations there. He did not seem overly concerned, although I guess he wouldn't express it uh, if he was, but, you know, he's... Uh, is very clear vision. He's, he's very committed to the relationship with Israel. Talked about it in really amazing terms. Um, but he's that is you're right. That's a very sensitive uh, situation. We see again uh, the rise of some of the groups, this, the ISIS and Al Qaeda, and the threats that they raise. Actually, in the Sinai, the situation is better than it is in other areas. But he faces, uh, you know, serious encroachments and. Turkey, uh, I think the relationship can be said to be very tense, not hostile. Um, obviously, Iran, others, and he is part of the coalition with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain. Is it dangerous for him to, to display such a desire to have normal relations with Israel? It's a reality. When Egyptian planes are flying along the border or even being based sometimes in uh, Israeli, there are helicopters at Israeli bases, I mean, it's no secret. And while it's not necessarily popular yet amongst the people and we don't have the change in attitude, right. it will take a long time to get it. But certainly amongst the government and his leadership, he's very open about it and um, and speaks about it very thoughtful and uh, positive terms. Did you think that these statements by the United States ambassador to the United Nations re-Israel were strong enough this week? Well, she's new. She's just her maiden speech, and I think she certainly made very clear where she stands on Israel and uh, will, I think, continue the tradition there that's been established in the last uh, two years. But I think she, um, you know, she will she will grow into the job with time, but certainly has a very strong feelings towards Israel. Did uh, the president also use the opportunity at the United Nations to speak about uh, countries normalizing their relations with Israel? Yes, he did. He did. He said that they should all normalize relations with Israel. Um, he, he made several speeches where he spoke about anti-Semitism. He spoke about uh, other issues, but called on the Arab states to normalize relations with Israel. Um, all right. So, of course, uh, one of the highlights, or I should say one of the uh, news items regarding the U.N. General Assembly that uh, we were concerned about was the potential meeting between Trump and Rouhani. That never happened, correct? He never even showed up in the United States, right? No, he was here, but oh, he, was he, he gave his speech, which, of course, was very hostile, and, um, and met uh, with different groups where he, he spoke in uh, threatening terms towards uh, towards Israel, nothing new. Um, uh, so, he, yeah, he, he was limited in where he was allowed to travel, um, but not limited in what he could say there, and so people can read his speech. Uh, he, he, he was here, but there was no uh, side meeting it's, we were all concerned. Was the pres was the pres was the, was the president really ready to meet with him, or you, or you felt it would never materialize? Look, I think the president is open to talking and and has a lot of confidence about his ability negotiating with people or putting down the markers. But look, you know, the action is what's important. We saw that Pompeo gave a speech this week, which was very tough, and Rouhani said there wouldn't be any negotiations as long as sanctions. Uh, uh, were applied, and the president's not backing off on the um, on the sanctions. He he uh, 
they, they made other statements uh, during the week, but also you have to look what the Europeans did. The three European countries came out, France, Germany, and Britain, um, pointing the figure at Iran. Iran was very furious about it. And there was a meeting between Merkel and Rouhani here. Uh, and the, um, you know, the British are saying they're going to pay 400 million pounds to Iran because of a judgment against them. Uh, the, our judgment's now being enforced against Iran. We'll have to see how that plays out as well here in the United States. But there was a three-way meeting of Nasrallah, Khamenei, and Soleimani while these guys, everybody was playing here in New York. That, I think, is of great concern, and whether they're looking to escalate things in the north, whether they feel under pressure, especially the uh, Hezbollah, not getting enough money, not getting all, all the arms they want, although they have more than enough, uh, or uh, discussing the pressure that uh, Mukhtar al-Sadr and the others are bringing against the militias and the strikes by Israel uh, or someone against the, <laughs> their depots and other things in Iraq. Um, just as they uh, hit them in, in Syria. Was that why Pompeo came out with the uh, sanctions against Hezbollah supporters statement in reaction to that meeting, or that was a separate thing? No, it was separate, it, but it, it's been intended and, and worked on for uh, for a while, uh, and it's in keeping with the with the sanctions that are being imposed. They impose on individuals who have been involved with uh, Hezbollah, uh, supporting them, helping them, facilitating weapons, etc., Financing, uh, this and those things really matter. They 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 have an impact. They have to, you know, people can dismiss it, including Zarif and others. But believe me, nobody wants to be under personal sanctions. Um, we've seen the attempts to to uh, create bypasses, the instex by the Europeans to to bypass the SWIFT banking system, fail, 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 and uh, you know while. Some people felt that it's it, the opening the door to negotiation sends the wrong message to people in Iran or out of Iran. I think the, the president uh, perhaps could say that, uh, you know, I showed that I was open to it, but it's not going to be at the price of the sanctions. Sanctions remain until Iran changes its behavior, and we see that they are more and more uh, aggressive in many areas, as is Turkey and the um, uh I, and I think that the, you see the violations of human rights um, uh, continuing, and the European Parliament came out with a resolution against Iran on it. Iran rejects all of the, the resolutions, anything, even if it's these allies who have been helping them. But we haven't seen the real economic, the evidence of economic benefit coming from the Europeans so far. There's still some trade, et cetera, but Iran's economic condition worsens all the time, and the, that is, gives great leverage, and it drives them into wanting to make uh, uh, deals. Can you make the argument? Also, I just wanted to say, we met many, the Indian foreign minister, the prime ministers and others. There is a general recognition of what Iran is, more so than in the past. Uh, I think a desire, short of military action, but of, of the pressure and support for the economic uh, restrictions that, uh, that have been put in place. Uh, is it possible you can make the argument that the the quiet, relative quiet on the northern border of Israel is because of those sanctions uh, against Hezbollah supporters? Look, the, the actions are continuing. They are building up along the Golan. Um, the the, uh, the militias 
and some under the guise of the Syrian regime, often wearing the military uniforms of the, of the army, of the Syrian army. Uh, so the, uh, it has not diminished, you know, from the tunnels. You know that they, right. there was the exchange. There were some missiles attempted, right. uh, drones, other things. We know that they are building up their capacity all the time. And um, when they decide that it will be appropriate, the people of, of Lebanon do not want to see a war. I don't believe Hezbollah wants an all-out war with Israel. They know the price that, that will be paid this time. It will be very high. And it, it, Israel cannot do a partial action as they did in the past. And I think with the administration's backing and the, the support of the president, in particular for, for Israel and uh, some other countries uh, and, the, and the growing relations with the Arab world and their dissatisfaction, their fear of Iran, and seeing Israel as the major ally in that uh, in, in countering the growing Iranian role and, and destabilizing role. Almost at the eve of 5780, this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at nachomsegel.com. On the Nahum Siegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app, Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I do remind everybody, and I want to thank those who responded to our uh, mention of this last week, uh, those of you out there who have not yet joined our annual campaign during 2019 before the start of the Jewish year is a perfect opportunity to do that. Don't forget the website, fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org, to help keep us going uh, every uh, source of revenue for this network is vital to keep going, and your support, your listener support, is among those. So please uh, help us by going to fjbunity.org and making a wonderful year-end donation. Um, the um, the news item that described that Great Britain is now going to have a different type of relationship with Iran as compared to France and Germany. Could you explain to me what that's all about? Um, well, I'm not sure that it'll be a different relationship. The uh, w- w- You know, Britain is going its own way. They did act again this week in concert, the three of them, both in uh, criticizing it, uh, Iran, targeting it, and saying that, the, 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 that they believe they're responsible for the attack in Saudi Arabia. At the same time, they still work together to create uh, economic conditions and uh, to bypass the sanctions, none of which are successful. Uh, I hope it's that under Johnson, who is now the Prime Minister of Britain, who is obviously uh, his attention is focused on um, on maintaining his government and the you know the court ruling that brought back the Parliament yep. into session after he had suspended it. And they said the move was illegal. It's created more tensions and problems for him. Uh, they could move again towards elections. Uh, they are going more of an independent route from uh, Britain, and certainly Brexit um, uh, underscores that. So I, I, I wouldn't say that they're that it's new that they're going in their own direction. They are closer to the United States than uh, I think Merkel or Macron feel today. The president. Also, you mentioned that uh, you met with, and we know you met with a variety of, of world leaders. I think your schedule today includes that as well. Um, it was interesting to watch. I'm always fascinated by this, and I don't know why. Um, Netanyahu and many others had uh, reactions to Erdogan uh, this week 
um, uh, when uh, he went ahead and had certain meetings and made certain public statements. You mentioned that you met with uh, uh, leaders in India, other countries. What do they generally say about him? I can't say on the air what they say about him. Um, I did. We did meet him along with the leaders of the Turkish Jewish community who came in for it. Um, uh, was that an, a, was that an awkward was, meeting because of his? No, it's a hostile meeting. Wow. He is. Um, but remember, we have a large Jewish community there. Right. The uh, you know, it's not because we're going to change him, you try to influence, give him information. He, he met with the uh, Naturakarta group, um, and uh, the, uh, you know, his, uh, his speech was obviously uh, outrageous, as always. Uh, the, the other countries recognize that he's a destabilizing force. He's got a lot of internal problems. The sanctions on Turkey, which don't get as publicized as the ones against Iran, are Biting into the economy. You remember the, he lost the local elections in, in the major municipalities, including Istanbul, and ran a second election and lost even worse. Uh, he's very concerned about, the, obviously, the situation in Syria with the PEK and feeling the United States supports them, the Kurds, and the, you know, they call them terrorist entities. Right. They're the Kurdish fighters who have done an amazing job. Um, and the, he, his proposal is to create a corridor along the, the border with Turkey on the other side. And he said this is really to deal with the refugee issue. They did take in uh, over 3 million refugees. And, uh, you know, the Europeans pay him for keeping them there. And he p- turns and tur- turns on and off the spigot to let them leave or push them out, if, uh, or now threatening to push them back into Syria. Uh, but he wants to create this zone so as to block the Kurds and get that will be a cover for him to go in there and, and try to kill them. He is, they are fighting inside now in, in Syria along the, the Turkish border, which is very long. And, um, and so that's a major obsession of his is how he deals with that, how he deals with the internal uh, situation. Jerusalem remains a major uh, issue for him because he, he, he keeps talking about Al-Aqsa being under siege. I mean, it's just outrageous and ridiculous um, uh, assertions, but he, he doesn't want to see the Jordanians and the others uh, having a role, and he not. And he, as he said to me once, you can't be a caliph without Jerusalem. Right. He sees himself as the inheritor of the Sultan of the uh, uh, Ottoman Empire uh, and has visions of hegemonic uh, control, and he is expanding their activities in Africa, Asia, all over. Uh, and many of the many of his the neighbors and others are very concerned, and uh, as are we. And uh, I think he, together with Iran, uh, they're they're working in tandem in some instances, but they're on parallel uh, uh, tracks towards trying to gain control and to expand their influence and building bases. And we have to be very tough with them because that's the only way. Uh, and hopefully, there can be political change in Turkey. He's been there a long time. It was reported sick. He looked very well. Um, it, Turkey is, uh, I would say, a parallel threat to Iran. It's funny because, as you've described to us, when the you know in the Iran slash Korea example, where the world is so focused on Iran and Korea is under the radar, it's sort of the same thing. Where Iran slash Turkey, you know, Iran is of course everyone's priority one, 
when it comes to safety and security of that region. But sometimes he's under the radar in terms of his intention, in terms of his capability. And, and, and by the way, we should just note that the Jewish community there has good relations with the, the, with him and the government. Right. And they have been protected by and large. And we had issues with cemeteries, other things of the community, which he sometimes personally uh, intervened. Um, and he keeps saying that he's not anti-Semitic and he makes anti-Semitic comments or things that are perceived to be. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, are, we have very tough discussions with him, but we have asked for his help with getting Hadar Golden with other MIAs because of his relationship with Hamas. Uh, there are other issues that, uh, that were important also to, that we discussed, but he is, uh, I think, can be described as... as certainly having anti-Semitic tendencies, if not being an out-and-out anti-Semite. And, uh, you know, he's flirting with the Russians, buying the arms from them. One is, is still a member of NATO, everybody should remember. And, um, you know, Turkey is a powerful country, even though he has stripped them of a lot of their capabilities with the arrest of 100,000 people after the supposed uh, coup. But, you know, he looks and he sees the same thing with Iran's, um, the the, the uh, exposés about Iran's advancements in, in putting in the new centrifuges, which will enable them to enrich uranium faster. He sees the others talking about getting to it, that India and Pakistan are nuclear. And he's saying Turkey should have the right to be a nuclear power also. And it's something he's repeated uh, several times. So either he wants everybody else not to be nuclear or that Turkey should be admitted into the club. And that's something we have to watch. He's not move in... in uh, in that direction. We've certainly uh, seen other countries make the same claim, no doubt about that. All right, before we talk about Russia, Shonda, one final item, and that is that, uh, well, the OU and others have expressed their outrage at Columbia University and its president, Lee Bollinger, for their decision to host Malaysian Prime Minister Mohammed, an unabashed bigot and self-professed proud anti-Semite, onto campus. So, of course, this is the old question, Malcolm, that you and I have discussed countless times. Uh, what is the... Uh, uh, what is the uh, relationship? What is the um, how do we deal with the dichotomy of anti-Semitism and freedom of speech? Uh, there's no. I don't believe this is a freedom of speech issue. Frankly, uh, we have come out very clearly calling on the donors and the supporters of Colombia to cut them off until this stops. Remember, they hosted Ahmadinejad, another Jew hater, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, he. this is a guy who claims that Jews rule the world by proxy. This is a guy who says, and, and in response to the criticism of his appearance, so this is post-fact, that uh, freedom of speech means he has the right to be an anti-Semite, and he's proud to be declare himself an, an anti-Semite. And for Columbia University, that uh, at a time when we see the rise of anti-Semitism and on the Columbia campus, the incidence of anti-Semitism, for Lee Bollinger, the president, who has now, this is part of a series of offensive actions. I hope that uh, they will pay a price for it. Uh, this is not a question of whether people have a right to speak. They would not in invite a leader who would say these things against any other group uh, and come in there and spread the bigoted and racist message and then find all sorts of excuses for it. Right. So I think it's a, it's a unique instance. You know, there are, there are certain things that rise to that. You know, when, when Abbas spoke at the United Nations and defended Pedersley, 
talked about that he's going to continue this policy. This is so base, and there's no other country that has a policy where they pay for people to kill, as the EPA does, and reward the terrorists and others with lifetime pensions and rewarding their families and engaging this. And we have you know legislation, more and more countries, and the cutoff of funds because it's about seven percent, maybe some say even higher, eleven percent of the budget of the PA goes to paying these murderers and uh, people responsible for, for the attacks. So, you know, but you don't hear the kinds of uh, out- outrage and people don't get up and walk out and they don't demonstrate the kind of true commitment to fighting anti-Semitism that they verbalize on other circumstances and, and with us. And we, we put these issues squarely in front of them and talk about the, the obligation that they have, and the um, and now you know in Great Britain they have a new system where they're going to name and shame uh, uh, local councils and universities that don't adopt the IRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, by the way, something we pushed many more countries to accept, and we had some some successes or commitments from countries this week uh, that they would do that. Interesting. Well, in our final couple of minutes, Malcolm, I'm hoping, I, I, I don't know why this is looming on me as much as it is, maybe because it's the, the largest gathering in synagogue since the episodes of last fall. Uh, I'm just hoping I turn my phone on on Tuesday night and everyone's made it through the Chag uh, in as safe and secure a, a, a manner as possible. In addition to that, what should we keep in mind as the uh, brand new year 5780 is about to begin? Well, I do think that you're raising an important point, which I don't want to overlook, and that is that I hope every synagogue and every community is taking the appropriate measures not to exclude people, not to scare people away, but to make sure that, that you take the fundamental steps and they can go to the SCAN U.S. Secure Community Network uh, website uh, to get advice and direction. It's, it's probably too late to do the training right now, but they should certainly remember this is a year-round concern, not... not um, just for this, uh, these few sec- days before Rosh Hashanah uh, and, and Yom Kippur, but for all of the Hagim and, and year-round, that security today is not something we can take for granted. There are attacks every day, constantly here in the United States, let alone uh, around the world. And, you know, too often it becomes the stepchild when budgeting and yeah. uh, setting priorities um, you know, for a couple of weeks after Pittsburgh, everybody gets involved. Yep. But, you know, we really have to look this time about the nature of the commitments that people make. You know, words are cheap and, and it's easy to have people attack and you see it in the media against the president or against the others uh, uh, and that people espouse hate can often uh, get away with it. And it's really everybody's obligation to, to stand together, and I was thinking about it, that why we read Nitzavim right before Rosh Hashanah, the, the Torah portion of Nitzavim. And there's so many amazing things in it where, uh, we, where we're given instructions in how we are conduct ourselves, and really as a guide to, to how we look at the Tzvilot, our prayers on, on Rosh Hashanah, and, and and God is telling us, look, all these things, this is not in the heavens, it's not across the seas, it's here, it's reality, that we are facing reality, and that's an obligation that we have. 
and not to look at what the Torah asks of us and what our community asks of us as something distant or something we can separate ourselves from, but it's our responsibility. And it's not only for us, but that's why they required that the tabchem, the children, had to be there, even though they may not comprehend everything that was going on and they weren't legally allowed to accept the covenant as minors. But he wanted them to understand and to share in the privilege of being part of, of that event, as the Rambam says. And, uh, but they wanted to be sure that future generations would be educated and would understand that uh, um, the responsibilities that befall on, on all of us. And that's why when he says, he doesn't talk about just for us because we're making choices for us and for future generations. And if we would realize I heard a statistic this week, which I haven't verified, but uh, it said that 35 people make 35,000 decisions every day. Wow. <laughs> and But you think, whether you open the door, you close the door, you move right. to the left or right. So if you think about it, every minute, every second, you're making decisions. We don't think about it. Everything is rote. And, um, and so we're told here in the parsha that, that the... You know, that the words have to be in your mouth and in your heart, that it's not enough to be intellectually there or emotionally there, but then it says you have to take the action, that that's what really is the real test. Your intentions may be good, but it's not enough. The real purpose of the Torah tells us is the actions that we take, and these actions impact our children, our grandchildren, and the real test comes later on, you know, when the Rav in his Moxer says when we talk about opening the book of life and death, he says that, that, that it doesn't mean a choice for those who will live and those who will die, but those who are living and those who are dead, because they get judged again, because sometimes their decisions, you only see the true impact later on. And, and therefore, all of us get, get judged over and over again, even after our, our time. So people shouldn't think things are beyond them, that it's not their responsibility, whether it comes to our, uh, our involvement in the community, when it comes to meeting some of the challenges. Um, and, and, you know, they get to say they're putting before, for us brachas and klolos, because what, they, what happens is dependent on us. So he's pleading with us, please yep. choose life. Yep. And people have to realize we make choices of life every day. You know, there are people who are very easy and, and uh, irresponsible in words that they use, the things that they say they have with, they, based on a little knowledge. First check, first learn, get involved, understand the issues. So many things are high price and high stake today. And we have to, each of us has to think about how do we relate to it. Not everybody can do everything. Baruch Hashem, we see the statistics. Israel has 9.1 million people. It's astonishing. We take it for granted, but think of it. 9.1 million people. And, you know, eventually there'll be 15 million and 16 million, God willing. Uh, and it includes, by the way, 1. Point, I think 9 million or 8 point something million Arabs. They're about over 20% and 5% uh, others. This despite the heavy toll that all the wars and everything has taken and more than 20,000 killed and over the years and... Um, and we see the birth rate going up. We have so much to be thankful for. But it's a time when people have to understand, this is not unreachable activities or aspirations. 
it's really going to be marked by the tachlis and of what we do. And when we're in our tefillos, we have to think about that, think of our families and immediacy, and then the larger community as well. Well, Malcolm, uh, you have taught us the importance of every single day. And with that in mind, I wish you and yours a happy, healthy, and sweet New Year. And we should be able to uh, continue with all the good news and all the important news for yet another year. To everybody, and you're right, I think that we're going to we're going to try and make sure that all the news will be good. It is Even right if sometimes it's bad. <laughs> there you go. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. As we wish everybody a happy, healthy, and sweet New Year. Weekly update complete for 5779. The good news is that next Friday during 5780, we get to start uh, again. And we should do so uh, in good health and with um, and with wonderful guidance from the one above.